On the first night of the retreat, I was talking about the word heart and a bit about the way of heartfulness. I was talking about how there seems to be a almost alchemical process that happens as we come into more understanding and wisdom about the causes that bring about our suffering and our pain that when we start to see into these conditions more fully, there's almost some kind of process that shifts from the mind, from the attention and the energy being caught up in the thinking mind and the thoughts and the head, the head energy, dropping down more into the body or in the heart. We can almost feel that energetically, I feel that energetically, when I do the practice, that there seems to be a shift that we can experience in ourselves as we settle, as we calm. In some ways, we feel like we're more whole. (laughs) We feel more the wholeness of our being. We're not just disembodied (laughs) in our heads, which we can often feel when we're running around in the busyness of our lives. But we start to feel embodied, and feel all of ourselves, the wholeness of our being. The senses come alive. The senses, uh, we see, we hear, we taste. We can feel things in maybe ways we haven't felt before. We smell the smells. Something comes alive within us. There's an openness, an opening of the heart, it seems. And many people have been expressing expressions of joy and connection that they're feeling through their insights and their relationship to the practice as they've been here. So it seems clear that something starts to cook, you know, like we're little pots on the stove and we're just kind of cooking and the flavors are kind of brewing together. Something's coming together like a, like a soup on the stove. And tonight, I'd like to explore what's called the Brahma-Viharas, the four Brahma-Viharas, which are the four boundless states of consciousness that we touch in the practice and we can also cultivate in the practice. Those are loving-kindness, or metta, compassion, or in Pali, karuna, Empathetic joy or joy, which is called mudita, mudita, and equanimity or upeka in Pali. We, we actually start to see and feel and know these factors, these qualities as they start to arise in our consciousness. And they can actually be practiced and cultivated as practices in themselves. And I'd like to reflect some of that to you because for me this has been a very important part of my practice and my deepening. Not just the vipassana, which sometimes can seem a bit dry and at times somewhat brittle. Some people have been talking about that. You know, just the, the bare bones of paying attention paying attention and then coming back, you know, paying attention, seeing what can be seen and then returning back to the breath or returning back to the body and doing that again and again and again and almost relentless, uh, with relentless effort and determination. And sometimes it can feel like, I need something else. (laughs) I need to sing or I need to go look at the birds and play with the squirrels and I need to, you know, soften my heart. And... I think it's been recognized that through the through bringing the Pasana practice to the West in the last 25 years, that that is needed. There is more softening, sort of um, what's the word? Kind of some juice, <laughs> bring a little juice to the practice. And it seems that the Brahma Viharas, the practice of the Brahma Viharas, and bringing more attention to those 
practices have really helped kind of uh, oil or grease, <laughs> give a little grease to the practice. So say a little about that, just about how how these practices actually came. There were my teachers, uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, were working with Saida Upandita in the early 80s, and they and Saida Upandita was really emphasizing these practices uh, in his teachings, and then my teachers brought them to students. And before that, we were really practicing the metta, primarily the metta, and using it the way that I've been teaching it here, you know, using it somewhat in maybe the beginning of your practice or maybe have one period in the day where we do the practice. And, and then I would take that metta practice and at times when I was home, if I was feeling a particular uh, difficult or negative mind state, I would send the metta to myself or I would send it to another person and I would incorporate it into my practice in that way. So it really was a companion to the practice. And then when Joseph and Sharon were bringing the practice to the retreats, we also had the option of practicing the technique of one of the Brahma-viharas, one of the four Brahma-viharas, as a technique unto itself, which meant that rather than doing the Vipassana, we might take, for example, the practice of metta and take the phrases, the four phrases or phrases, four phrases that resonate, and just repeat those moment after moment after moment. Repeat them from the minute I woke up in the morning to the minute I went to bed at night. And so the phrases became a repetition. And that was the object of my meditation. So my, my mind went off, I'd come back to the phrases. And, it, and, it do, and that was how the practice was taught, so that we would use the metta practice, all the compassion, all the mudita, all the equanimity, and each one has phrases, as a practice in itself. And it was quite amazing quite amazing to do a different kind of practice in that kind of intensity and to see what actually was generated in that practice. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But it became very attractive to many students to actually take the time to take maybe a month or six weeks and just do intensive loving-kindness or intensive compassion or whatever practice at the time attracted and just repeat the phrases. Interesting. <laughs> the Buddha talks quite a lot about these four Brahmaviharas. This is the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. It's a book that was published a couple of years ago, the Majjhima Nikaya. It has 152 original discourses of the Buddha. And through the text, he repeats this particular frame a reference to the four Brahma-viharas again and again and again through many, many of his discourses. He says, He abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere, and to all as to himself, he abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. And he says the same for each one. He abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with compassion, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere. He abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with compassion, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. Really start to feel that boundless quality of being filled with this particular quality. The same with he abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with empathetic joy with a mind imbued with equanimity, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. 
And this is repeated through and through the teachings, this emphasis on how important it is to feel into and know the depth and boundlessness of these particular mind states. They're very beautiful and powerful states of consciousness. This is very important to us as Westerners. When the Dalai Lama first started having contact with the Westerners, he was so surprised how judgmental the Western mind was. He hadn't really encountered this level of self-hatred and ill will that seemed to be in the mind of the Western students. It seemed that in the East, there was a different, there is a different kind of structure where individuals are held within a family unit or within a community, within a village. And there doesn't seem to be as much feeling as, as much feeling, as many feelings of isolation and fragmentation as we seem to have here in the West. And in the West, it seems that with this breakdown of the family and the community and the way that people live, there's much more isolation and sense of individualism and in that more contraction and self-judgment that arises in that. And the Dalai Lama felt too that it was very important for us to really work with this negative and hostile tendency of the mind because in order to really start to have a mind that's able to practice well, there needs to be a certain amount of happiness. We need to feel a certain amount of innate happiness in order for the mind to be stable, in order for the mind to be still and focus and investigate. When a mind is filled with lots of agitation and restlessness and stirring, it's very difficult to stay one-pointed very difficult to stay present because the mind is consumed with all of those past conditions and there can possibly not be very much happiness. And happiness is actually a cause for concentration to arise. When the mind and mind is happy, it's easier to concentrate. It's, a, it's one of the factors that, is, that conditions the arising of concentration. I had the image of being like on a rocking boat. Like if we're on a rocking boat, it's a little difficult to pay attention to the beautiful sights all around because we're more concerned with the way we feel so sick (laughs) from all the rocking. (laughs) And it seems like we have to kind of stabilize the boat (laughs) before we can start to really appreciate, enjoy the smells and the the sights and the the sounds of of the beauty of the sea. And it seems that many of us are kind of like in this rocking boat and we're trying to just get some stability so that we can just settle down a bit and then pay attention and see what's here. And so it seems that the Brahma Viharas are very good practice to help the stabilization, to help bring a bit more uh, softening and uh, foundation so that we can do our Vipassana practice. We can do a practice. Some people say when they are doing these practices, practices, when the phrases are referring back to an I, like, may I be happy, may I be well, they say, but isn't that just more reinforcing of the sense of self? Isn't this just building up more of that sense of a self-concept which it seems that many of the teachings are trying to break apart or loosen. And it can often, often seem like a contradiction. On the one hand, we're loosening the structure, and then we do these practices which seem to bring them back together again. But it seems that, again, unless there is a certain foundation within the ego structure, there's a certain stability within the ego structure, that fragmentation just will not give rise to the, to the conditions that one needs to focus and pay attention. So in a way, we need to stabilize the ego structure. We need to stabilize that sense of ourself in order to then begin to break it down, to see what's really true, to see what's really true about 
uh, the non-separate the non nature and the interconnectedness of this world. There was a phrase that uh, somebody coined, uh, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. You know, I mean, some people don't really agree with that, but it's sort of like that. <laughs> First, you have to have a sense of, of who you are in order to feel strong enough to proceed in that very difficult path of breaking things apart because it, can, it takes a great, a great amount of strength and a great amount of perseverance and determination in order to do that. Where is one going to gain the resources in order to do that? So we help build ourselves up a bit if we have a lot of negativity or anger or hostility or negativity or fear or jealousy or envy. And these practices really help with softening those rigid tendencies and fixations of the mind. Another question that people ask about the Brahma-viharas, because the Brahma-viharas are kind of, they're like blessings or prayers. May I be happy. It's a prayer or blessing that I send to myself. Or uh, if I wish that for another person, may you be free of your suffering. May you be free of your suffering. People ask, well, does that really have any power? <laughs> does it have any real impact on that person that I send that, that blessing to? How can I really trust that that, that that very abstract sense is going anywhere, is doing anything, making any real impact in the world? And I suppose it's another area that we, we may need to establish or develop some faith. Faith in, maybe faith in the mystery of how things actually work here. You know, what, what, what does give rise to certain conditions of mind and heart and body? You know, it seems that, it seems that perhaps prayers or blessings have some kind of force or perhaps even just a force of intention, that force of the wish for that to happen could have some power. There was an article that I saw in a newspaper about prayers. And they've actually done some studies to kind of try to get some sense of whether prayers have some effect or not. And it says there's a, um, a 1988 study by Dr. Bird of 393 patients at the San Francisco General Hospital Coronary Care Unit found those who were prayed for had fewer cases of congestive heart failure, less pneumonia, less need for antibiotics, and fewer cardiac arrests than those who weren't prayed for. Now, where does that arise from? <laughs> Another study, a 1995 study at the Dartmouth Medical School of 232 patients who had undergone elective heart surgery found the very religious were three times more likely to recover than those who were not. Three times more likely to recover because there was faith, because there was some trust in something greater than the small, isolated being. There was also a study that I heard that patients who had a plant put in their hospital room and were able to actually care for that plant to water it and nurture it and give it love, take care of it, actually facilitated their healing. They actually got better more quickly. So there seems to be some power that we're able to generate through these mind states, through our intentionality for love, for compassion, for joy, and for equanimity, for balance of mind and heart. I'd like to say a little bit about each one, the metta, metta, or loving-kindness practice. Metta 
is really simply holding the intention to wish for my own or someone else's happiness and well-being. It's really very simple. It's just having that intention. Like, like shooting an arrow, we aim at a target. We, we aim at a target and we just hit that particular target with that power of intention. And the aiming is more important than the actual result. It seems that that, that wish itself brings, gives rise to something very potent. When I was doing my intensive metta practice, when I was doing it for six weeks and just repeating the phrases and repeating the phrases, what I found for myself was that the reason it seemed to have power was because it acted as a mirror for myself to see myself. It reflected this ego structure back to my conscious awareness so that I could actually see what my capacity for loving was. Because I could see all the moments that I was not able to meet that aspiration. I was not able to feel happy. I was not able to wish, want to wish myself happiness. I was angry, I was irritated, I was tired, I was fearful, whatever it was, I was bored, I had lost my faith or I doubted. And by keeping the repetition of those phrases, all that was reflected back to me. My own places of holding and contraction where I could not love anymore. I did not want to love anymore. (laughs) Places where I had to face the truth about myself. I had to face the truth that there were times of anger, times of fear, times of holding. And, ta- and I didn't want to see that. It would have been, as we all know, much easier just to pretend they're not there. Oh, yeah, I've already achieved these high states. I'm, all, I'm, I'm able to be very equanimous and loving and generous and peaceful. But it seemed that through that intensity of that practice, there it was. I didn't, and seeing what I didn't want to see. And so it constantly forced me to look at the question, how do I hold the truth about myself? How do I really, really relate to those difficult patterns I see in myself? Do I, when I see anger or fear or jealousy or agitation, am I able to hold that with ease and gentleness and an open heart? Or do I feel shame and disgust towards myself. I could see that again and again and again and I was forced to continue to ask that question. And at times it was very difficult for me just to relax when I saw aversion arise or anger to arise and I'd say, oh, haven't I finished that yet? (laughs) Is that still arising within myself? And I would get frustrated and more agitation and I'd feel tightness and coldness in my heart and then I was asked again, can you wish for your happiness? <laughs> wish for your well-being. Wish for your ease. Relentless, relentless aspiration. And I found that the only antidote was to continually hold that sense of limitation with love. There was nothing else I could do. I had to continue to see if I could open my heart to myself. There's the anger. Can I open to that? Can I allow that? Can I not judge myself, get down on myself? To continually embrace myself with the metta. Because metta exposes that gap between our immediate truth, what we see in the moment, our self-consciousness, our vulnerability, our fear, that sense of ego or limitation. And on the other hand, our aspiration for what we know is possible. Happiness, ease, compassion, well-being. Mm-hmm. And we're always playing between the two. And then sometimes that gap can feel so big and so wide. Like I'll never, ever bridge that gap. I'll never close that gap. We'd rather just reject that limited part of ourselves and just keep striving for that sense of perfection. 
and yet we see it doesn't work. And the only way to relax and close the gap is to soften and embrace, embrace both the sense of limitation and that aspiration, the wish that we have. Not ignore one or the other, but to embrace them both. And doing this, it really reinforces that wholesome tendency to love. It reinforces the possibility and the tendency to love ourselves or to radiate that love out to others. And it really works. I've seen, I have people who write to me, who talk to me and tell me about what's happened for them over the years of their practice. Just yesterday, I got a poem from a woman who's been doing the practice Vipassana practice, and of course metta is included in the Vipassana practice because we always have to bring that attitude of of gentleness and loving kindness to whatever we see whenever we're doing the Vipassana practice. And she sent this poem. She said, I can't really put into words what's been happening for me over these five years of my practice, but I want you to have this poem. And this is a woman who's had a lot of difficulty, a tremendous lot of difficulty with situations in her life, events in her life, a lot of negativity in her mind, strong critical negativity. It's called Witness. I'm taking the scissors, snipping a seam here, a buttonhole there, unraveling the, roll, the rose, but slowly and carefully, no tugging with impatience. Resting. Remember how, remembering how this sweater used to keep me warm during those terrible dark days of crying for the cold I couldn't keep out. Crying, crying for the cold I couldn't keep out. So, in the unraveling, I am gently turning and winding the crimped, bent strand of wool, making a solid round ball of yarn with which to knit my new jacket. And even though it's winter and my skin stands bare against against the iced wind, I feel warmer than I have in years. Slowly, slowly, (laughs) unraveling that sweater that used to keep her warm and using that yarn to make a ball for her new jacket. But even though it's winter and my skin stands bare against the iced wind, I feel warmer than I have in years. What is that? What's been awakened? Something that is shining with warmth from within until everything else falls into place. We're doing the best we can. We're all doing the best we can. We have to start where we are. I found this poem in the office the other day from St. John of the Cross. And I saw the river over which every soul must pass to reach the kingdom of heaven. And the name of that river was Suffering. And I saw the goat which carries souls across the river, and the name of that goat was love. That is what we need to find, generate the light of that love within our own being to keep us warm as we walk along this difficult path. So we make a wish to ourselves. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be safe and protected as I walk along this way. May I feel at ease. Wishing that for ourselves with gentleness. And then radiating that out to others, touching others and hoping for their happiness and well-being so that we can all give support to each other on this difficult path.
But that, that love that carries us as we go along. The metta, the loving kindness. And the compassion, the compassion is also metta. Compassion is metta, but it is that metta that sees the suffering of beings and wishes for their release from it. It's that love, the metta, turned towards the suffering element, facing the suffering element, and wishing for the release. Whereas the metta, the loving kindness itself, sees the good in others and wishes for their happiness. The compassion faces the suffering and wishes for the release from it. So we turn our attention towards our own pain and towards others' pain and face it, look at it, touch it, and that action awakens compassion. But yet it's the very thing we don't want to do. We don't want to turn towards it because the habit or the instinct is to turn away, to be repelled, to feel aversion towards it, to not want to see it, to not want to feel it. The heart wants to close in the face of that suffering. It's almost like facing, if I, if I want to face that suffering in some way, the fear is it's going to threaten my happiness, that, I, that little bit of happiness that I already have. Like I have just this little teeny ball of happiness and peace and if I really open to that suffering it's just going to shatter that and I can't risk it (laughs) I can't risk looking at my own pain I can't risk looking certainly at the pain of the world and so somehow I have to keep my eyes closed keep the blinders on stay, stay within this small little world so I can just hold on to that little bit of happiness that I have and I know this, I did this all through my 20s, how I just shield my, shielded myself from what was happening in the world. And it was during the 70s when the Vietnam War was going on, the world was in turmoil, and I just didn't want to know. I avoided it. Amazing that somebody can do that. Avoid Vietnam War. <laughs> and it's somewhat embarrassing to even, to even say that because I know that there's people in here it was very, very important to be involved in the action of that. But for me, my heart was closed because I felt that I couldn't afford to open my heart. I couldn't afford to take a look at what was happening. It was too threatening to that little bit of security that I was standing on. And as I felt stronger, as I've opened my heart and able to grow more within the strength within my own being, I can start to turn and face the depths of my own pain and the pain that I see around me. And 10, 12 years ago, 12 years ago, I went to India for the first time, and I don't know if I could have gone before 12 years ago, because India doesn't shield Mother India doesn't shield any of the truths of this existence, birth, sickness, aging, and death. It is all out. It is all out for the eye to see, for the heart to know. There's nothing behind the walls like there is in the West. Nothing is compartmentalized. It's all out on the streets. (laughs) So it's very difficult to turn your eye, although I know people go there and do, but it takes a lot more work. And so that the last 10 years going to India every, nearly every winter has been an incredible practice in opening my heart to compassion and facing, looking straight in the eye some of the deep truths, painful truths about this existence, the sickness and poverty and, and death and isolation and all that you see, the children and the, and, and the families and the old people. Nothing's hidden. And knowing this about compassion, that actually turning towards it is the antidote for opening the heart. Because turning towards it, what it awakens is that 
response to actually want to alleviate the pain. What can I do? If I look at it and I'm able to open to it, the response is, is there anything I can do to help so that this pain, this, this suffering doesn't continue? And the great compassion, the people who are able to really open, <laughs> I always think of the Dalai Lama, the great compassion that's possible to open to, to open the, the heart, to embrace the, the depth of the pain of, of people, and to be able to take action to help as much as possible, it's profound. It's very profound. And there are people like the Dalai Lama who can be great inspirations for us to show us what's possible for in our own being. That possibility. Something interesting about compassion is that what disguises itself as compassion is sorrow or grief. When we look at, a, we look at take the example of looking at somebody who's sitting begging on the street in India, or we don't have to go to India, we can see it in London or anywhere else, somebody on the, on the street, and we feel some sorrow, we feel pity for that person we can imagine or have a sense that that's compassion, that's a compassionate response. But the teachings say that it's not compassion. And it's not compassion because it still has some aversion in it. It still has an energy of not wanting that to happen. I wish that that person didn't have to be sitting on the street. There's a little bit of a, of a of, I don't like it, I don't want it, and still a little bit of a shield. And the teachings really refine these boundless states. If there's a little bit of sorrow or self-pity or grief, one must look to see if there's still some withdrawal and lack of acceptance for the truth of that manifestation. It's not bad that one feels sorrow or grief, it's just not compassion. Com- compassion is an unconditional allowing, an unconditional allowing with an open heart. And it's not just passive, it's not just a passive feeling, but it really is that heartfelt wish to alleviate that person's pain. It has the energy of generosity. It has a, a free, a free energy to it where we're not bound or held by any anger or aversion or fear. And that free energy moves us to action, to want to serve, to want to free the person or ourselves from the pain. The exercise or the, or the, or the phrase for co- the compassion meditation is to to think of somebody who is really in a lot of suffering and to hold that person in your heart and say, may you be free of your suffering. May you be free of suffering. And saying that until that that feeling of compassion really flowers in your heart. And it's quite remarkable when we really touch the pain face the pain, that it's possible to awaken those feelings within our own heart. Compassion. The third one is mudita, and mudita is the joyful one. Suffering is hard. (laughs) Sometimes it, it really can pull us down. But with mudita, it's the joy, the joy that can arise within us. And the mudita is to feel happy for other people's happiness, to feel happy for other people's successes. It's a rare and beautiful feeling when we can really feel happy for another person's happiness, when we don't feel envious. Oftentimes when another person another person just got 
you know, a, a really good job or found a great place to live or uh, got an inheritance. There can be the way the heart kind of closes off and, hmm, <laughs> how come it happened to them and not me? You know, a way that we isolate ourselves in that. And we're not able to really open the heart and feel the joy for that person's happiness. And we can, we can, we can know how, how it feels when someone expresses that happiness for us. When somebody looks at us and really has that appreciation for something wonderful that's just happened. Say, I'm really happy for you. I'm really happy that you're able to, uh, to go visit your mother or whatever it is. I'm really happy for you. And, and we feel that sense of connection. We feel that, that open-hearted connection with that person when it happens. And so much of our unhappiness comes from the contraction of negativity towards another person. Judgment, demeaning, envy, jealousy, comparing. We get into this tangle with other people so often in the ways we, the ways we close off and separate ourselves because we can't appreciate their differences or appreciate their happinesses or their joys. Sharon Salzberg, who wrote the book, The Book, <laughs> Loving Kindness, it's a wonderful book that's helped all of us understand the four Brahma-Vaharas. This is a story that she tells about the, um, those mind states that get us so entangled this mindsets of negativity towards another that really causes so much pain and separation. The Buddhist scriptures tell a wonderful parable about a kind of monkey trap. To make the trap, some tar is spread on the ground. A monkey then comes along and steps in the sticky tar. First one little monkey's first one little monkey foot gets stuck. In trying to free itself, the monkey puts down another foot. Then it puts down one hand, then the other hand. Finally, in a desperate effort to gain some leverage and free itself, the monkey puts down its head. That is a very stuck monkey. <laughs> that is just how those tormenting states of mind, such as judging, comparing, discriminating, demeaning, and envying, collude to get us stuck, to keep us stuck, and to make us miserable. When that monkey has just one foot in the tar, Instead of putting down the next foot and then the hands, if it were to reach out and grab a tree and pull itself away, it could be free. Mudita can provide just that kind of opportunity to extricate ourselves from our stuckness, to be free enough from the tar traps in our lives to be happy. Rather than just pulling back in all of that kind of mess of negativity, we reach out. And to connect. Ah, see if I can feel that joy and that happiness for what's going on. Sometimes we think that happiness is this, again, a limited resource. That the more someone else has, the less there is for me. It's kind of a quantitative view of happiness. There's only so much to go around. And if I don't have my share, then I'm going to lose out. It gets to be kind of fixed or static. And then we have to compete for happiness. <laughs> you know, if they're happy, then I can't be happy. We get into be very competitive, competitive about this. And then other people become a kind of threat to us and our own happiness and security. But Murita realizes that happiness is not a limited resource that happiness is actually boundless. It's unlimited. It's an attitude of, my, attitude of mind. Happiness is an attitude of mind that is infinite. And Murita is non-judgmental and allows for others to live differently than we would and feel happy for them. It allows for differences. And so when we do the mudita practice, we say, may your happiness and joy never leave you. 
We bring that person who we might be feeling some competition or envy or jealousy towards, and we think of something, we think of them being happy and things that bring them happiness. It can help to think of one thing, uh, like, for example, my father-in-law loves football. And when I go over to his house, he's often watching football. You know, I'm uh, watching it on, during the day or watching it at night, and it's like, oh, God, you know, there's the football again. And, you know, I can become quite, um, I, can, I can imagine those feelings arising, rising of becoming quite irritated with him because he's not really with us. But the mudita is focusing on the fact that that brings him joy. It brings him happiness. And so bringing that into mind, may that happiness never leave you. May you never lose that joy and that happiness that you get from football. (laughs) I mean, if it's football and that's what wakens that joy, wonderful. You know, whatever it is. And that's the mudita. Can we do that? Can we extend that, that one hand and free ourselves from the negativity and separation that we might feel. And it's a practice. And the last one is equanimity. And equanimity really is the underlying one of the other three. It underlies and empowers all the other three, metta, compassion, and joy, because it's the one that keeps us connected. Without balance of mind, we really can't experience the loving-kindness because we'll get into contraction or reactivity. Without the equanimity, we can't really face the suffering because it's too painful and relentless. So we need the equanimity for that balance. And without the equanimity, when we feel in the face of somebody else's success or happiness, we might contract and feel that negativity. And so the equanimity is is the ability to face unsatisfactory unsatisfactory aspects of life again and again without drowning in aversion and sorrow. It's the non-reactive mind. It gives us courage to face the difficult again and again and again. And this is what strengthens within us and helps us to increase that capacity to face the difficult within ourselves and around us. It's that unconditional acceptance, an unconditional acceptance, and it allows us to feel at home in ourselves and in the world, rather than feeling alienated and fragmented. I found this poem which I thought really demonstrates the equanimity. It's from Layman Peng, an 8th century Chinese Zen master. My daily affairs are quite ordinary, but I'm in total harmony with them. I don't hold on to anything, don't reject anything. Nowhere an obstacle or conflict. Who cares about wealth or honor? Even the poorest thing shines. My miraculous power and spiritual activity drawing water and carrying wood. Not too much expectation there. (laughs) Equanimity, non-reaction, non-reactivity. Often our mind can't understand why things happen the way they do. We don't want things to happen the way they do. And yet why things happen is bigger than our small minds can open to. We need to have a very vast perspective to really open to why things are the way they are. And that's not really always possible. And the the development of equanimity helps us to gain that strength to open to that. We accept what's happening because it's happening, not because it's right or wrong, just because it's happening. There's one teacher in California who says, how do we know when something's perfect? 
she says, because it's happening. <laughs> That's how you know. If it wasn't perfect, if it wasn't happening, how could it not be perfect? It's happening. If we can accept, we can have a more balanced perspective. Otherwise, we're just adding more suffering. No matter how much we may wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Things are as they are. In this life, there is both joy and sorrow. Can we accept both with an open heart? And this is the phrase in the equanimity practice. It's one of the phrases. Just to repeat, things are as they are. To think of a difficult situation and then to bring the phrase in, things are as they are. This has been a very important practice for me. In India, when I see so much confusion and chaos in the culture, the poverty and the sickness and the uh, corruption and all that goes on there, I don't like it, I want to react, I want to get angry, I get fearful and say, things are as they are. Things are as they are. It's a very profound practice to take that realization deep within our being to come to that level of acceptance in the way things are and not fight from that reactive, angry, fearful mind, but to be able to respond to conditions from a balanced and compassionate heart. Things are as they are. And what disguises itself as equanimity is indifference. And this is a very important point because often people say, well, when I get that restful within myself, when I get that accepting within myself, I just don't care. You know, I lose interest. I lose lose that, that engagement and I become indifferent. And this is not equanimity. (laughs) This is disconnection. And equanimity is connection. There's nothing cut off in equanimity. With equanimity, there's full engagement in what what is happening, but without the reactive mind of anger and, and attachment. One can be fully in the center of the experience, but not be stirred around it. That's equanimity. People often fear that the meditation practice is going to lead to cutting off. This is something that comes up again and again, that it's selfish indulgence. This is not what the practice is developing. (laughs) It's not developing more contraction and holding. It's developing openness and connection. Things are as they are. These are the four Brahma-Viharas that can help us strengthen our capacity to live and to face this very difficult path and journey that we're on. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.